Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible, um, journey with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We continue working our way through the glorious Old Testament. Coming out of the period of the judges, we find ourselves in the reign of Saul toward the end of his, his time. Before we get there, there was a teenager boy who had been out playing basketball in his driveway, as boys often do, and had a buddy come over, and they were doing a little one-on-one basketball together, and he got, uh, you know, basketball, of course, is a non-contact sport, but he got contacted, and uh, in being contacted, he lost his contact, it fell out, and he spent some time looking for it. He, He stopped his buddy. They were both down on hands and knees trying to find this contact and where it had bounced to. You know, if those things fall out, they're next to impossible to find. He had to go in after about 45 minutes or so and confess to his mother that he had lost his contact lens. And well, mama quickly brought him outside and in less than two minutes, mom found that contact lens and her son was just, I mean, he was stunned. He was like, how in the world did you find that so fast? I mean, I've been out here for almost an hour looking for this thing. And she says, well, son, it's simple. We weren't looking for the same thing. You were looking for a piece of plastic. I was looking for $150. (laughs) Perspective makes a difference. Our point of view in this life makes a difference. They're like opinions, I suppose. They're everywhere, virtually on every subject. Politics, we could have a few in this room. We could talk about sports, and we'd have our opinions about whether or not somebody is going to win the Super Bowl this year. We could talk about the weather. I think we probably could all come to a consensus that it's hot and humid. We know that. We can, we, nobody tell you, there's a cold front came in today. It's 90 instead of 95. Okay, now it's not gonna happen. Um, but you know, like I do, that you see it one way, I'll see it another way. We have also varying points of view of Jesus. Some would say he's a prophet. Some would say he's a prophet like all the others, no more greater, no greater than any of the others, um, but on equal footing um, as some of the other prophets that the world knows of. Well, as we look at 1 Samuel 16, there is a point in time where for King Saul, the word of God was not enough. It was not uh, on that same kind of level, and Saul had a different point of view, and Samuel was there when Saul was anointed. He, in fact, is the one that anointed him as to be the king over Israel. And Samuel will even be corrected on his point of view. When we get to 1 Samuel 16, we understand what's uh, happening in this time that coming out of the time of the judges, Israel demanded a king. Um, If you were here during Judges and even in Ruth, we talked about it briefly that In that time, the scriptures say there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so because of that, they are now coming out of that period, Samuel being the last judge, and he is the, uh, they're begging him, pleading, ask God on our behalf for a king. 
And, uh, and they, why? Well, scriptures tell us they wanted, to, they wanted to be impressive. They wanted to be efficient. They wanted to be what they thought was powerful, just like all the nations that surrounded them. Um, and in doing that, they got really something that was not a glorious result. So we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. If you would stand with me as I read. I'm going to read to the end of verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the heart, excuse me, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. It is my prayer that we recognize and acknowledge and submit ourselves to the authority of your word, that we come under your authority and listen to you speak through your word. Father, it is my prayer that you help us to listen and learn, believe and obey. I pray this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. What has happened just before chapter 16 and why Samuel is grieving over Saul is because God has said, I'll see you later, Saul. This is the end of Saul's kingdom. 1 Samuel is a story of, of Israel's desire for a king and how God will provide that king. And you'll, again, remember that time where there was no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what was right in his own eyes. With Samuel being that last important judge and now prophet for Israel, he's tasked with leading God's people. Around chapter 8, the people see that Samuel's own sons were not walking with the Lord Samuel's getting older in age, and so they begin saying, who's going to lead us? We want a king. But their reason for that, as I've already pointed out, was to appoint a king for us, to judge us like all the nations. Their perspective is not right. Their, their point of view is, is skewed. And from that moment on, Israel is not going to be the same. Now, Israel, now Samuel was, was just, he was broken over this. Why? Because he was their leader. 
He was the judge of the time. He was the prophet, and, and, and he's, so he's broken because he, he feels rejected. Like, they're not taking my leadership. They're rejecting me, but God quickly stepped in in chapter 8, verse 7. He says, Samuel, calm down, man. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. That's God speaking to Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. Now enter Saul. Saul is anointed by Samuel. He had a good start. He had a good start to be. Everybody's excited. We got a king for Israel. Scripture mentions his appearance. He was taller than anyone else, bigger, stronger. He was just head and shoulders above. You've, you've seen those guys. You can see them on Friday night. Their shoulder pads are taller than everybody else's, and college scouts are watching that one kid, never mind that he's a part of a team. Saul had some victories over the Philistines. He had, like I said, he had a good start, but there was something about Saul that just didn't connect with God. It, he, he just didn't take the time the way the king of Israel ought. So in chapter 13, Saul was waiting for Samuel to arrive at a place called Gilgal. Saul was facing a formidable number of Philistines they were up against, and Samuel was coming to offer a sacrifice for Saul and for Israel. Saul couldn't wait. Samuel was delayed. It took him about seven days, and so what, what did Saul do? Saul took it upon himself to offer that sacrifice. That wasn't his job. He wasn't the one called to do that. Samuel was the one that was supposed to do that. And when Samuel arrives, Saul wanting the favor of God, having stepped out of place to offer that sacrifice, Samuel says, Saul, you have acted foolishly and you disobeyed God. You are the leader of Israel. You are the leader of God's chosen people and you have disobeyed God in this moment. And right then and there, Samuel delivers that heartbreaking news for Saul. He says, Saul, your kingdom shall not Continue. The Lord has sought out a man according to his own heart. Despite his strong beginning, Saul, we would say, stumbled and fell. He didn't even cross the finish line. He was rejected. Now, moving to chapter 15, Saul is still in place because God's anointed has not been anointed. It happens in chapter 16. He will eventually come and take the throne. But in chapter 15, Saul is still there. He's still trying to make progress, still trying to be the king, still trying to do all these things. And after what was a victory, Saul still had not obeyed God. He was up against the Amalekites this time, and he was supposed to wipe them out, but he did not. He listened to the people, and he spared King Agag's life, brought him back as a trophy. And Samuel, Samuel looks at him in verse 26 and says, Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. Once again, last time you disobeyed God, this time you have completely rejected the word of God. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, chapter 16, we get to verse one and God speaks to Samuel. There's very little time in between here. Samuel is grieving over Saul and he says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? How long are you going to be in mourning over Saul? You see, Ecclesiastes tells us, the preacher there tells us that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time for everything. There's always a season in life, a time to mourn and a time to dance. These are the seasons we go through in life that God has written into us as a part of our being, as he is our creator. 
But Saul's actions were grieving Samuel. They had grieved, and he was still grieving because Samuel was God's spokesman. We see in Samuel that he cared for God's people. He cared deeply for them. He had led them as a judge. He, he had prayed for them as their prophet. But disobedience, the disobedience of Saul was grieving him. I mean, he had a hand in that. He was the one that anointed Saul to be king. What a disappointment it was. Samuel took it personally that God's glory was tarnished by Saul's sin and his disobedience and that he was leading Israel that direction. But God is saying, it's time to wake up. It's time to move past the stage of grieving. It's time to move forward with that next assignment. Saul, Saul, it is time to go to Bethlehem. Sam, uh, Samuel, it's time to go to Bethlehem. Saul's time is over. It's time for Samuel to get on with it. And Saul is gonna stay in place for a few more chapters in 1 Samuel but he is absolutely going to go mad when David is anointed king. David's going to come in. He's going to serve under, the king, uh, under King Saul, but Saul immediately gets jealous of him. He's going to try to kill him twice. David will have his opportunity to take out Saul, but he doesn't. He spares his life. Much drama in 1 Samuel. God rejected Saul as king, much like Israel had rejected God as their king. So, it's time, Samuel, to recognize God is right in his judgment of Saul. God was on time in his judgment of Saul. And it's time for them to move past the grief. And it's time to look for that better day, the day when God's future plans would become reality. One of the ways that God helps us in our grief and in our struggle is to remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that there is a better day in Christ coming. So he commands Samuel, Fill your horn with oil. Take that oil of anointing and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, in little Bethlehem, and I have provided there for myself a king among his sons. All right, a great way to restart what Saul has undone. And there's that sweet little town of Bethlehem in action again, always a part of the story. But we see in Samuel some fear. He fears Saul. Of course he should. He'll kill me if he hears about this, is Samuel's reply. But when God calls you, we gotta trust that God's got that plan and he's gonna see it through. Not only does he have a plan, but he's gonna fill his church with the power and the purpose to make it happen. And even when we are facing a persecution like Samuel's life is on the line here to trust God and to be obedient, his life is on the line, but even in that moment, that's when we go to him as our refuge because there God offers us protection as well. So God says, Samuel, take a heifer. Go to Bethlehem and offer a sacrifice. If Saul finds out, tell him you're going to make a sacrifice. That's all he needs to know. Now, I love that phrase in verse one, where God said, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. That's what we need to focus on. For myself a king. God has found for himself a king. Not a king to rule over God, no, no, no. A king that will be after his own heart and according to the heart of God. But even in his choice, it's an unlikely choice to be the next king of Israel. This is that moment from, chapter, from verse 4 to uh, verse 13. This is that moment that Scripture talks about where he, that our God is the God who takes beauty from ashes, joy from mourning. This is that moment that God is intervening in his people, for his people, and he's going to send them the king they need at this point. So God sent Samuel on to Bethlehem. 
That little place is important. We've already covered that in the book of Ruth, didn't we? You remember? That's where Naomi left with uh, Elimelech. She left full, went to the promises of Moab, found out the promises of Moab were empty. She returns uh, a widow and childless without her two sons, but she returns with Ruth, and she returns back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And eventually God restores her to fullness and pleasantness, as well as Ruth, as he brought Boaz in to be the redeemer. A beautiful story. It's not the last time we're going to hear about Bethlehem. And my question in this, at least in my mind this week, was, you think Samuel understood how important this moment was and how important his obedience was? That the role that little town would play centuries later. More on that in a minute, but even in the face of fear, faith will overcome fear, and Samuel did what Saul could not. He obeyed the Lord. He trusted God's promise. So far, so good. Though people receive Samuel nervously in verse four, they ask him, do you come come peaceably? If you'll read at the end of chapter 15, you'll see why they ask that, because he had to clean up what Saul did not do. Samuel had to go back and finish the mess, and it's uh, kind of gruesome, but those moments are in Scripture, so that's there. I would encourage you to go back and read that. It'll mess you up a little bit. It's fine. But uh, they're nervous that Samuel is there. Yes, I come in peace. I come to offer a sacrifice. Now, we get to verse 6, and this is where we begin to see a difference in perspective take place, that Samuel and perhaps even some of those that are with him at the sacrifice have a different point of view than what God has. And Samuel's going to learn from the Lord in this moment, verse seven, a truth that we all need to hear this morning. Samuel was seeing as man sees. Well, there was a little boy in his backyard, uh, took his ball and his bat outside, and he just kind of stood there and thought for the moment to himself, I'm the greatest baseball player in the world. So he tossed that ball up in the air, Gave that bat a swing, and he missed. He looked down, he's kind of surprised that he missed. Well, undaunted, he picked that ball up again, and he threw it in the air a little higher this time to give himself some more time, and he said, I'm the greatest player ever. He missed again. Now, this time, he's kind of beside himself, but he paused a moment, he looked at the bat. Oh, there's no hole in the bat. This is not a trick baseball. Okay, so he's going to do it one more time. He tossed that ball in the air. I'm the greatest baseball player ever lived. (sighs) Missed. I mean, I swung as hard as I could, but not missing a beat, that little boy said. Whew, what a pitcher. (laughs) He changed his perspective, didn't he? Yeah, Samuel was swinging for the fences with Saul. He struck out. He's swinging for the fences again, and he's not going to pick another Saul, or is he? Look at verse 6. When Eliab thought, uh, came and appeared, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely this, this is the one. The Lord's anointed is before him, obviously. Look at him. Wow. Stunning. Well, it wasn't him. Then the next brother, Abinadab, came in, and it wasn't him. Next one comes in, and it wasn't him. All the others, nope. What's going on here? Well, we see verse 7. 
If you go back to when Saul was selected, the description of Saul was not that he had a heart according to God's heart or he was pursuing God or anything like that. It's that he was tall, strong, handsome. That was the description. Well, Elia was tall and good looking. From Samuel's perspective, seeing as man sees, that must have been the guy. Had to be the one God was looking for, but it wasn't, not this time. Like that little boy who declared himself to be the greatest baseball player in the world, Saul and Samuel had struck out. Samuel needed a change in perspective, and he gets it in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has a point of view. He has a big picture perspective. And it's very different than our limited point of view. One truth that comes out of verse 7 is that God is not limited to anything and by anything or anyone. But every human point of view or perspective is limited, of course. We can only see what we can see, but God is not. He is actively involved in our time and the history of his people, but he's also over it all. He's not limited by those outward appearances, and for that I say thank you, Lord. (laughs) He sees to the heart. He knows what's in a man or in a woman. He knows exactly what those thoughts are. And this is why when we come to his word, which Saul, you'll remember, had neglected the word of the Lord, but when we come to the word of the Lord, my conviction is that we are hearing the voice of God. He speaks to us here in this moment when we read. And Hebrews chapter four tells us that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We can't do that with each other. We try. We think we know what the other one's thinking. We don't know. We don't have that ability, but God does, and his word does. And I'll add this little nugget here from Vody Bauckham, who's one of my favorite preachers, when he said, the Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. When you read the word of God, you hear the voice of God. This is the voice of God. Saul rejected it. If you reject it and we as a church reject it, we're in trouble. And ultimately, we're going to be rejected. But... The reason we have different points of view, back on, and on task here, the reason we have different points of view and different perspectives on the issues is that we have that limited perspective, limited points of view, but God is not. And so if God has this point of view, not one of the, his perspective is not one among many equal perspectives, right? His unlimited perspective, his big picture point of view has absolute authority and validity above all others. That flies in the face of postmodernism. It flies in the face of of everything that we would see on TV today or what the political system's trying to do or whoever's trying to force something on us next. We got God's big picture, his point of view, his point of view, his perspective, his plan is authoritative and 
has so much more validity when compared to all others. It stands above and beyond as truth. Well, if this moment was left up to Samuel, the next king is Eliab, but it's not. God has spoken to him. Don't look at his outward appearance. You wait until you hear my voice. You wait until you hear. And so by the time we get down uh, past that moment, Samuel's asking, are all the sons here? You got everybody here? No, there's one more, but he's out tending the sheep. Yes, get him here. Bring him in. That little one, that little runt is David. David comes in. When David walks in, the Lord speaks to Samuel. He says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, Samuel didn't turn to the Lord and say, the runt? Are you kidding me? No. He took his horn of oil and he anointed him. And in the midst of his brothers, the spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. From that moment on, David is the anointed king of Israel. God's perspective in this was determined by his will and his purpose. Verse seven is an interesting verse. I ran across, a, a because of the sermons I listened to, the preachers I listened to, he, he was quoted by the preacher I was listening to. And so I had to go digging and find out, okay, what is this guy talking about? His name is John Woodhouse. He's an Old Testament scholar from Australia. And he translated this verse in a more literal sense. And he, he translated verse seven this way, for the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. Not according to the eyes, not according to the heart of man, but according to God's heart, the heart of God. In other words, it's God's perspective. His perspective, his point of view is determined by his own will and his purpose. If you go back to verse one, you'll see there at the end of verse one, I mentioned it a while ago, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. For I have provided for myself, that's what the ESV says, the Christian standard says, I have selected for myself a king. Chapter 13, when Samuel told Saul that he was rejected, Samuel tells him this. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. That can also be translated according to his heart. What I'm getting at here is that as our God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, he is eternal, he is infinite, he is unchangeable in his power and in his perfection, his goodness, his glory, his wisdom, his justice, and his truth. Nothing happens except by him, through him, and according to his will. I have always applied verse seven. When I was a youth pastor, as I preached this before in my own life, as I read it in my devotion, I have always applied it. Chris, you better be seeking after the heart of God because God's gonna choose you if you are. That's not what it says. That would be merit. Our God doesn't work on merit. He works on grace. According to the heart 
of God. I have selected for myself a king according to God's own heart. If it was about David, then David would have been chosen on the merits of the amount of his love for God. I'd go on and say that you should be chasing after the heart of God, which you should, absolutely. But David had a place in God's heart. It is God's choice and that he is able to rightly choose his man, David, for this moment. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 21, David is out reflecting in a time of, uh, uh, of devotion, if you will, and he's out reflecting on God's goodness, his kindness to him, his provision. See if this helps you, because this is what, this is what David said to the Lord as a, as a word of prayer. He says, Lord, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. That's grace. David's not saying, oh, Lord, how I have obeyed you and walked step in step with you and done everything I'm supposed to do. Because of all the things I've done, you've blessed me. That's not what David said. Because of your promise. You see, David believed in the promise. Even as a young shepherd boy, he believed in the promise of God. He was a part of the family that had lived that out. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz. Boaz and Ruth get married. They have Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. They are actively living this out in this little town of Bethlehem. What I think I've discovered or what the Lord has shown me through his word this week is that there is more here of God's grace than I've ever seen. God's grace, not merit. David had a place in God's heart because that was God's purpose. And that's what made David so very different than Saul. Saul wouldn't, wouldn't believe. He didn't believe the promise. He didn't hold on to God. He was out trying to do his own thing, trying to earn it. And then here you got David, the little shepherd boy. Well, this moment when David enters a story, all he did was walk in. He probably smelled like sheep. He was probably dirty. He probably hadn't cleaned up. It doesn't give us much time there. He just says, they sent for him. He came in. Boom, Lord spoke. This is the one. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him. How does that apply today? Friends, let me turn your attention to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Quickly, I'm going to pick up uh, there in, in verse 16. Paul is preaching. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. I get you through Exodus. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, now we're in the time of Joshua, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them the judges until Samuel the prophet. Now we're in 1 Samuel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will, who will and do all 
who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. What does this have to do with us today? Without David and through David, we don't get to Jesus. That's the point. That's how it applies. He brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's the promise. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, one after me is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The key is Jesus. 200 years or so later, after 1 Samuel 16, Micah the prophet would say, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Without God's sovereign choice of David here, that line throughout scripture that leads us to Jesus is going to be skewed. If, if, if Samuel had picked Eliab and left it up to his own choice through the wrong perspective and the wrong point of view, he would have gotten it wrong. It was David. It was God's choice. Why? Because David was on God's heart. Was David a man that chased after God's heart? Absolutely. Read his, read his songs. You will discover. But David wasn't perfect, beloved. He was not. He was not. He stumbled hard and he fell hard, and yet God restored him. But even in that big picture of what Micah prophesied, you know the story. God's big perspective. Out on the hillside as the shepherds are tending the sheep, watching over their flocks by night, they were interrupted by that heavenly host who brought good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And from that little stable emerged the God-man who came and dwelt amongst his people. But you know, something about Jesus is very similar to David. We get a little bit of a physical description about David, but when you think about Jesus, God said, don't look at his outward appearance, look at the heart, right? Listen to what Isaiah says about him. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And he took the penalty of our sins at the cross. Friends, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. Perspective. Getting the big picture of what God's doing and how he's bringing us along in Christ-likeness. Friends, we can get tripped up because we spend a, lo- a great deal of time comparing Coastal Oaks Church to other churches. They have this, they have that, we need that, we need this. Somehow we're incomplete because we lack staff or we lack programs or we lack a completed gym. Someday it's coming, we know it. Beloved friends, this church is complete. You know why? Because Christ is the head of it. And he is all we need. That's the perspective. God's heart was and still is to this day that you know his son Jesus. I beg you to look at the unlikeliest of kings. Take a look at him. God's purpose was and will always be Jesus. I'm gonna finish this morning by reading out of first Ephesians chapter one. Just, it's an opening chapter to the letter of the church at Ephesus, and it's powerful. Why? Because there we will find the answer to what lies ahead of us. I'm gonna start reading in verse three. I'm gonna read all the way to the end, so just hang on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, okay? You're gonna see that everything is in Christ. It's all about Christ. Verse four, even as he chose us, not because we're tall and handsome, okay? He chose us who? In him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are, were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having eyes, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When we find the answer to what lies ahead of us, we look to Christ and we find that answer. We don't look to man. Paul prayed that we would have the eyes to see, eyes and our heart full of God's purpose, not my own. And when we do that, we will find Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's bow our head and close our eyes, church. As we come to our time to respond this morning, I wonder how your perspective is.